Welcome to the Road to Precise Podcast, your guide on everything open at Utrecht University and beyond. Today we'll be speaking with Jose Ura and Santosh Ilamparuti from Delft University. They started the open hardware community at Delft University. And with us in the studio, no, at home, is Siko. Hey there. <laughs> Hi, Siko. What, what did you talk to these people about? I talked with them about the community they started, mm-hmm. which is about open hardware. And they have also managed uh, very, very beautiful things. They tell us about it with the community. What do you know about open hardware, Siko? That's a good one. So I remember that when I was a PhD, and that should have been somewhere around 2014 or 15, I was at this conference where some guy came on the stage and told us about open hardware. And I was like, what is this all about? Uh, I was in neuroscience back then. And what uh, what you should know about that field specifically, I did electrophysiology, is that we had setups to do our experiments with. And you might laugh at this because you're a, phys- you're a physicist, but we, we had setups that were somewhere between 10,000 to even 100,000 euros to just set up and build. And everything you had, like a microscope or a laser, a laser, or all kinds of recording equipment. It was all just extremely expensive. And everything was within these like companies, like three or four companies who built those things. And this guy came on the stage and said, like, I made a calcium imaging set and it cost me 4,000 euros in total, even though the going standard rate was like 40,000. And I had a colleague as well who was like very, he was so creative. He just bought like, like a cheap ass laser because he didn't need a very expensive laser. And he had already had a setup. He tingled some stuff together, wrote some software and boom, for like 10,000 euros in total, we had the most advanced setup of the entire lab just because he was using resources from other people who already invented stuff and they opened it up. You don't need a freaking computer to make a laser go flash, flash. You need a Raspberry Pi, which costs like 30 euro and takes an afternoon to program. So that's my association with open hardware. And I think it's one of the parts of the open science movement that you don't hear about that often, but it kind of could be a deal breaker. Yeah, I mean, that also shows that if you talk with the Dutch about cost, there yeah, are. man. Ooh. <laughs> Ears really open now. <laughs> <laughs> now, what that is definitely true, open hardware can be cheap, but also more important that it can be very fast to reproduce. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it can make it a lot more, a lot easier and even more standardized in the, the, the regular things that cost a lot of money. And it also, this is the thing, it makes you able or capable of doing certain types of science that are normally not within your reach financially. I'm coming back to the cost again, but this is also something, it, it opens, it actually opens up science to greater parts of the world. Because we, we do tend to forget in the Netherlands that we're freaking wealthy. Yeah. Actually, the, the sort of the very iconic open hardware piece, the Arduino, mm-hmm. Came yep, to us not from the science corner, but from the design corner. So it was in Italy that a, a group of designers wanted to, you know, make uh, instruments or art that interacts with people. Said, "Oh, how can we make a sort of very simple electronic chip that even the designers ah, can program?" And I that know. was the start of Arduino uh, at the very beginning. Uh, which That's is a nice. beautiful path of art giving to science instead of 
the opposite. Excellent, like it. Okay, but before going to the interview, should we have a look at the news? Yes, let's do the newsy news. Can I start? Go for it. We'll put it in the show notes, of course, as we do with everything in our newsy news. But uh, recently it was Open Access Week. And it actually was a very busy week that week because a lot of things came out. And we've got a lot of stuff uh, on the on the roll here for you from the Open Science Week. And one of the things I found interesting to mention is uh, a nice practical guide to preprints that was published by the VSNU, NWO and uh, the Royal Dutch Library. And it basically, uh, a couple of people sat down who know a lot about preprints and know a lot about publishing and wrote this very handy to read guide for journalists, policymakers, for scientists, for communication people, etc. on how to deal with preprints. Like how seriously should you take it? What kind of steps do you have to undertake when you want to write about them or use them in your research or in your, uh, your publishing? And also, not very, not the least important, how to recognize them. Yeah. Because it's that's that's something that seems to go wrong the most often that people just don't recognize it's a preprint. It's also a very rapidly developing part of publication, especially in life sciences. It yeah. grew massively in the past year. Yeah, this is one of those things that that it's very different across disciplines. Like preprint, for like you you must know, like archive has been around for for ages. I but was a student when I learned about. Is archive. it? Whoa, that's that's like <laughs> that's like three years ago suddenly. Um, <laughs> Or but more it, like 30. But it's actually, uh, I read a, a paper by a Royal Society of Chemistry, I think, last year. And it, it's actually, of not the Royal Society it was. And it's it's growing in every field right now. It's really That's taking on a flight. Yeah. Yeah, of course. People want to have the information and they want it now. Yeah. I also saw you uh, in an event, again, with your very nice suit and, you know, talking to former ministers and have a lot of important people. Uh, listening and you to want you, to know Sika. what I was doing. <laughs> what were you doing there? Yeah. So uh, Frank Miedema, the head of our open science program here at Utrecht University, who's also a professor in open science, has been working uh, endlessly and tirelessly for the better part of the last two years and uh, also uh, like nagged a lot of people with his book. But it's now actually out. <laughs> it's called <laughs> Open Science, A Very Idea. What I like about it is that it's a th- it's a theoretical approach, but also a very personal and practical approach to open science and also to the question of how to raise issues and then actually making sure that you solve them for the community. And uh, the registration, I have to say, is in Dutch, uh, but it was at the Bibliotheek on the Neude. And we had these wonderful panelists. We had Marijs Winkels, we had Hieke Huistraai, we had Jet Bussemaker, and together they made this wonderful panel uh, to discuss open science and the latest development with. So I would actually advise you to take a look at it for them because they were a wonderful panel. Yeah, it was a nice uh, discussion, but there was one moment that really, really rang very deep in me. And that was a moment of royal response. The royal response, yes. Can you tell us about the royal response? Well, actually, you should watch the clip because Frank explains it quite well. But the um, In Dutch. Yeah, of course, yes. So the royal response, actually, when I read the book, I was like, so where do exactly do I see the definition of the royal response? But it explains how the, the vested interests respond to somebody or a group of people saying like something is actually quite wrong here and it usually is something in the case of in the sense of like these are incidents it's not really a big problem uh, the system works for most people so is there really an issue and then sort of try to muffle it on the carpet and carry on okay that's recognizable right (laughs) it's very royal what else is in the news Siko? 
Well, let me tell you, uh, the NWO Open Science Grants that we talked about in the very first episode of this new season in the beginning of September, they were actually awarded. Uh, I think it was two weeks ago. And amongst the awardees, is, is that a word? I'm not sure. Was our very own Sanli. I cannot give it to myself anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Utrecht University got four of the 24 grants which were awarded. We were super happy. The Fair Battery Knowledge Base was our grant, which is a continuation also connected to the partly to the other open hardware project we are doing and very connected to the team of this podcast. But there were also three other open science initiatives, activities granted. One was about how to set up an open science community. Now, even that is now open or can be made open via a nice. sort of escape room game. There was another one, how to rate and assess open software. Oh, yeah, cool. And there was also a fourth one about a systematic way of making the metadata for your data to be able to publish it. So it's fantastic that you know the open science community sees it so holistically that they provide the service also for the rest of the open science community. Yeah. Very, very happy about it. Although I must say I was very disappointed that the success rate or the granting rate of this call was also just 15%. 15%. Yeah. So more than 100 proposals oh my not God. get it. It is like, what? And they were worrying that they wouldn't get any proposals. <laughs> I don't know if that was a worry, but it's a lot of proposals which are not granted. I'm absolutely sure they are brilliant proposals. The nice thing here is that uh, if there is consent from the authors, the proposals and the review reports, everything will be made open. So mm. hopefully for the people who pay attention, there is a pool of extremely good projects already peer-reviewed, already commented that you can go and just for 50 bucks, you can get yourself a very, very nice open science project. For 50 bucks? 50,000. <laughs> <laughs> now this, this sounds like uh, it's a very small step in the revolution but it's a very nice step uh, to yeah. take note of and well, i heard that from the past like the welcome trust uh, also had a similar scheme and many of the proposals which were published which was not granted in the initial round got funding somewhere else so ah okay i wish good so luck it actually for works. all the people yeah oh that's wonderful okay and what else have you been up to uh we had the Open Science Symposium in the science faculty mm -hmm. also on the day that the prizes were announced. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Annalena Lamprecht was one of the uh, awardees, but also the organizer. And it was a very nice event, busier than the last one that we had just before the uh, pandemic hit us. Mm -hmm. And it was very practical from, you know, how to manage your repositories or how to organize data all the way to uh, how to combine outreach with your research. It was talks from the students also, from postdocs, a very diverse set of speakers, and also our wise uh, dean of research who introduced the triple. So many people actually came to hear, maybe for the first time, openly about this new scheme of uh, full professor appointing based on the triple criteria. Yeah, so the recognition and reward in practice. That is true, yes. And it was presented. That's real good. Yeah, well, to close off the newsy news, that's just one thing. Um, 
in the latest issue of the NWO magazine, the NWO a survey on open science was presented, and it's actually very positive. You can, I think, have a conversation about the response rate, but of the respondees, uh, 87% of all researchers said that they had a positive or very positive attitude toward open science. It's even higher under young researchers. Uh, what I do think is interesting that it also corresponds with the monitor that we did at Utrecht University, which we'll be talking about in a later episode. So it sort of it gives an indication that these are the people who know about open science and respond. Their response is positive. We will delve deeper into the numbers some other time. I think it's time for the interview, right? Yes, let's listen to Jose and Santosh. Thank you very much, Jose and Santosh, for joining us here in Utrecht uh, for the Road to Open Science podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Maybe we can start if I ask you to please introduce yourself, Santosh. Uh, sure. Um, thank you for inviting us. I'm Santosh Lamparuti. I'm the data steward for the Faculty of Electrical Engineering, Mathematics and Computer Science at uh, TU Delft. I'm also the project lead for Open Hardware and a member of the Delft Open Hardware community at Delft. You, Jose. Thanks for having me. Also, Sanli, it's really nice to see you. Officially, I'm a research software engineer now at the TU Delft, uh, part of a team called the DCC Digital Competence Center. So there we help uh, researchers with uh, software mostly, but before that, I've always been an enthusiast of uh, open source, so I've been working with the open hardware community in Delft, trying to, yeah... Uh, encourage that movement around uh, with the community and yeah that's pretty much and you also have a book right yeah i also have i also made like uh, this little book which was a kind of a summary of what i learned from uh, open source the most interesting is the i would say the images and the the art so that's really nice but maybe we should read edit it and add some new things but yeah Okay, so I'm very curious about the story of the open hardware community. So which of you was first or were you together when it started? Uh, well, I started uh, It is because I was very excited uh, once when I saw this um, uh, project called Open Source Ecology. So I was, you know, I was coming from the industrial design faculty in Delft, which is extremely vibrant with a lot of uh, things going on, startups, uh, initiatives. Uh, it's, a, it's a faculty where, you know, uh, projects are very tied with industry and also social problems. So for some reason with the courses and everything, you get really excited with all the international background. And then I saw this um, project and then I was asking myself why, why there is not much of that going on at the university or is there let's find out you know so that's how that's pretty that was pretty much the motivation and what got us started to from that at the university yeah and you santos i've been interested in open source for a long time and i've believed in open hardware uh before but i never really had an opportunity to explore that um it was just serendipitous that i met jose along with Yanis, uh who's also one of the co-founders of uh, Delve open hardware um at a, another event where it was about open hardware and th things were being discussed so i just went to the event and ran into these guys and uh you know we talked and from then on we've kind of you know stayed in touch and eventually it evolved into uh being much more <laughs> actively working together and building a community together Oh, very nice. Yeah, you you tell about the open ecology. It's also one of the projects which I 
really uh, look to. Uh, it has been a physicist actually starting that, coming out of Princeton. And the story is also something from really need. He says, you know, he wanted to have a farm, but then he bought a tractor. Uh, that was all his money. Then the tractor actually uh, needed something to fix, but he didn't have money to fix it. So I said, okay, why don't I start building a tractor? So it is a very, I would say, project with high ambitions, but also very inspiring because it's uh, aiming so high. So maybe I ask Jose first, what's your ambition for the open hardware community in Delft? Uh, well, this is, the ambition has been like evolving and it has been unfolding because it's been a community effort. So the first ambition or motivation remains like, why don't we have that more integrated at the university? And since everyone is using Arduinos and things like that, uh, maybe also like the spirit behind the gadgets is also interesting to bring to a university. And not just among the students, because many students are familiar with these things. It's some, for some, it's really natural. But for, you know, academic staff, uh, previous generation, you know. So um, the, the ambition really is to try to embed it organically at the university uh, and make it uh, natural, spontaneous, and let's say uh, a culture, something that people is aware, including not only just the design, but also the business models, the communities, the, the history of the movement, because it's so fascinating and interesting that it's good to incorporate it. You know, as people are talking about companies or this and that, everyone knows about Steve Jobs, but what about Linus Storwell? What about this guy uh, from the open source ecology? What about all these other people that we are not so familiar with and are so important to universities? So, so uh, Jose hit up on a lot of the uh, aspects that I believe in as well. I think for me... Um, it starts with the fundamental philosophy of what knowledge is and who should have access to it, who has a right to it. And if, you know, a lot of the knowledge that we readily use, both uh, theoretical or, you know, physical, whatever it is, most of it is not locked away, right? Uh, things we take for granted, all of it is available community-wise, socially available. And what is the reason to silo off a part of it? Why, what is the reason to silo off what, uh, you know, most often is public investment, I mean, you know, be it at universities uh, or other places, a lot of money that goes in. And I think that is where it starts for me. Uh, in a more concrete sense, we just want research that is published open source. Like, you know, open science is getting more and more traction and that's brilliant, but it will always have something missing if open hardware isn't there. Right, open source software. Yeah, now it's taken for granted, and the idea that you have software policies at universities on how to publish open source, all of that exists. But I think we would want open hardware to get there. There's a lot of hardware being produced, and a lot of hardware being produced that normally, at least, should be openly available as anything else that is research output should be available for everybody to explore with it. So that's where I think uh, I would like to see get where open source software is now correspondingly with hardware, and then explore where we go beyond that, where how people want to take it. I, I, I don't think there should be one goal. I just think allowing the community to evolve itself over time would be good. Yeah. yeah. So I would like to come back to community later, but on the aspect of developing open hardware, we also had this in open software before. One critic that has is against open hardware is that maybe it's not as good quality as something which is you know, uh, supported by a, a company and has, has gone through the, you know, engineering controls. 
Do you agree with this statement? Um, if the question is, is there some open source hardware out there that is low quality? Obviously, yes. If the question is, is there some company-backed hardware that is low quality? Yeah. <laughs> so the question of whether something is low quality, I find it as a non sequitur. If, if it's something low quality, then let's work to improve it. Complaining something's low quality is complaining that, you know, there's a ditch in the road or there's a ditch between, yes, there's a problem, agreed. We find a way around it. So for me, that complaint doesn't ring through. I think what does is the question of how would we make good quality open hardware, right? And I think that is a very valid question. Um, and, you know, as the effort at uh, what we're doing at open hardware at UDelph, I think some of it is targeted at that. We want to have good documentation. Uh, we want to have replication projects happen. We want to have support available. And we want to encourage researchers to do that. With open science going around at the universities, there's this concept of rewards and recognition, right? And we want to include that with the open hardware part as well. Okay, so if you if you bring it into the design of the process and also requirements of joining a community, then you think that the uh, quality can go higher. I, I It reminds me, a little bit of, uh, I saw a TV segment of, uh, I don't remember which program was it, but in the Dutch TV, uh, Ben Ferenka, the Nobel Prize winner of chemistry was there. And he was saying that, you know, I don't give any more interviews unless it goes with uh, tackling the influence of climate change and sustainability. And then I think he was asked, but you are now, you know, collaborating with, you know, fossil fuel companies. And he responded that, of course, we do need them because they know how to make things on scale. Do open hardware community people know how to make things in scale? And have you good examples of that to tell us? I think there are the there are many, I would say, good examples. Uh, Arduino is one of the most emblematic examples, but if you go to Ada Fruits and SparkFun and all these uh, initiators of uh, the markets of open hardware and, you know, hobbies and makers. It has been around for not only with hardware that is open, but also with hardware that is not open. Because there the point is that it's more about manufacturing. Is there a manufacturer, a manufacturer that is interested in, for instance, uh, making, you know, massive production of Arduinos? Then there will, and that's where you get the copycats and other people copying even the open source hardware because it has so much demand that it doesn't really matter if it's open source or not. So it really depends more. That's something that is more, I think, has been more controlled by the market. What is interesting about open source is that because things are open, before even getting to a scale, the hardware developers get a lot of feedback. So I went to Fosdem, a couple of friends, uh, I think it was 2019, and there was this uh, person, and the video is also on the internet about he runs a, an open hardware company and he does industrial-grade hardware. He has, I don't know, there is a computer that is called All Linux Uno, so it's like a Linux computer or Arduino or something like that. And he was explaining how he was able to make successful hardware components, which were open source, and how he used open source to actually drive the, the their, their new designs. He wanted to, you know, get feedback from the community. So... It really depended on the. It really depends on the market. It really depends on the niche. It really depends on the capacity of production and things like that. But it is. It has been happening already that people are doing that, even without that much interest from investors, because investors, you know, would normally go to uh, with things that are protected 
or patent because then they have, you know, a benefit of a niche that maybe someone else cannot get in. So even without having that advantage, they have been successful. So that has, that has happened. And maybe what is interesting is to look at the history, uh, what has really happened, which are the people that are doing it. Because, uh, yeah, some, some people say, oh, you know, like open uh, hardware is not good quality, but I wonder, like, how do you know that? Or what, where is the statement coming from? Is it something that you think? Or do you have uh, evidence that that's the case? So I would I would also ask people, how do you know that? You know, where do you get the the idea from? You know, and then sometimes I mean, yeah, I know it or no, it's just something I think about. So, Santosh. So uh, I think part of the uh, question there and the answer there is about what would you fully consider open open hardware, right? If you want it to be from scratch, uh, I think was it uh, was it in the Hitchhiker's Galaxy? I don't know which book, but essentially says if you want to bake an apple pie from the start, you have to start with the Big Bang, right? Mm-hmm. The same way if you are talking about open source hardware, where every element is completely open source, everything is like uh, always there. Yeah, no, it's 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 going to be really really hard. Um, uh, I think the idea has to be that make as many parts of it open as possible. If some aspects are closed but are very easily available in the market, easily buy, mm-hmm. then yeah. But I think another important aspect of open hardware is also regionality, right? In the, the, simply the fact that sitting here in the Netherlands, I can order pretty much what I want and I can have it shipped doesn't mean that there are large parts of the world where that is not possible. And open hardware, open source movement, and I think... It, you can't remove the larger ethical and moral questions from the conversation. And that is important because that, that means that open hardware production here, you shouldn't only think, oh, what is the specific business case? Not that that's not important, and I'll get to it, but there are other aspects as well. Uh, as to the question of specific business models, oh, 20, 25 years ago, Microsoft was fighting tooth and nail against open source. It was calling it cancer. Right? Exactly, mm-hmm. right? It was, well, I think it was Bill Gates himself who called it uh, cancer. Or was no, it, the other Balmer. Balmer, yeah. Balmer, I think it was Balmer, whatever. But now, <laughs> one of the largest contributors to open source projects, I think uh, I think in the last couple of years, I think Microsoft uh, edged past Google even, right? Yeah. So the question then is, well, what do we do as a community to foster that? And of course, I think it has to be kept in mind that Software has this inimical quality of being that the threshold is very low. Yeah. If you can connect to the internet or have a computer, you can essentially learn what to do and then start creating. It's free to copy. Exactly, right? right? So hardware takes that away. But there's also the element that hardware produces a class of things that are tangible in a very literal sense. And so you've got to decide what you want to do with it. So the question of, oh, can you mass produce? Is open source hardware going to create a commercial system where we start mass producing, I don't know, hammers? I doubt it, right? But the question then is, maybe we are only producing niche products. Maybe we are producing products that uh, are more resistant, resilient towards supply shocks. Look at what happened during COVID-19, including at TU Delft and other places, local development of the design for ventilators, for example, became much more common. And uh, because of the, the transportation shocks, what happened with the Suez uh, Canal block and the supply chain blocking, there is also a sudden consciousness that we can't essentially outsource everything to China, for example, right? There is a, a need that there is, a, a, there is an element of resiliency built in and diversify, uh, diversification, which also means that you're going to have 
not just mass produced but more niche products more low number cost ones mm-hmm. and you know with the development of new and new technologies i think we would have to explore what are the business model mm-hmm. right my background yeah. is in mechanical engineering and in uh, computational fluid dynamics there are companies that for example provide services by using open source software in cfd mm-hmm. right there are consultancy companies but also companies that help others who are using open source software to work on it right yeah. what is the analog for that in um, open hardware maybe we have it maybe we don't maybe we find out so i think yeah. that's where there is there is also something interesting and uh, santosh is mentioning which uh, i think has to do with the scale because scaling down is also very important for resilience so uh, for some things you want to scale up because it's more efficient for some things you want to scale down uh, and sometimes you want to scale down so that you can produce it locally in combination with things that have scaled up like uh, electronic components and you want to do, for instance, at the regional level because it's more cost-efficient. So the structure of scales and scales of economy are, is also very important because it doesn't necessarily apply that for all the levels of design you want to scale up or something that you want to build locally, like, you know, a setup that you have to, like a, like an experimental setup or whatever. You don't want, you that's not scalable, but that's, that's better to make it uh, downscale, for instance. So there are many examples where the, the context uh, and the needs, the specific needs, tell you if you want to recycle laptops instead of mass producing them or if you want to reuse phones or, or chips or whatever. And reflecting about all that ecosystem of, of, of needs uh, without taking for granted that scaling is the, the standard, but sometimes downscaling is also very important. Yeah, customization is actually very important. Uh, okay, can I add just one more thing to absolutely. it? Absolutely. Um, I think it's also the idea that what do you want to do and what kind of platforms you want to have. So, for example, we have, you know, everybody has a cell phone now. It's hardly a point. But there are constantly more questions about the levels of privacy available and the whims of the large companies. Essentially, what? Apple, Samsung, and a couple of other companies control the full market. And we have this product lifecycle thing of, oh, every year, every two years, you've got to buy a new phone. There is the aspect of planned obsolescence right if the if the large scale company's profit wasn't the only motive and if sustainability was another motive why is it that we don't have a modular phone platform that is common there have been a lot of plans and ideas for it but these big companies are not going to back it because that's not where they're going to make the most of the money right not that there's nothing anything wrong with trying to make money but what does society want that's a different question right? okay now it actually now connects to sustainability which is a very interesting question and the issue of patenting Because in my view, the way you said scaling up, we have this global issue of transitioning the energy supply. If you want to walk it through the you know traditional cycle of uh, economic growth, and it will be just too costly, uh, and we do not have even the, uh, the carbon dioxide budget for that. So it makes sense that you actually provide a lot of developing uh, economies directly with the renewable sources of energy. But at the same time, we see at least the funding agencies or the big plans still follow up the uh, the old style fashion of partnership with the company, right? If there is a solution for, I don't know, battery control systems, or if there's a solution, uh, which is mostly developed at the university for, let's say, plastic recycling, it goes forcibly through a partnership and then the, the company who bids more and bids first actually wins but then also blocks 
further development. Why do you think with all these arguments that you brought that the university and the science funding agencies still do that old model? Uh, <laughs> there is the um, well. I mean, I don't know if it's possible to answer that question without quoting uh, controversy. Yeah. But I think it's a. I, I don't think it's isolated. The fact that we uh, within the European Union, for example, so much of research is driven around commercialization and the aspect that uh, we have to partnership with industry. I don't think that's an isolated. Oh, why is industry? Why is academia deciding to do this? It happens because it's a larger context within which we exist, right? Where commercialization and commercialization through corporations and um, where that is the model of the economy we have plays a role into it, right? There is invariably lobbying happening for this to be the case, right? Mm -hmm. Just look at, we talked about sustainability. Just look at the emphasis that has been placed on people's carbon footprint, yeah. which, you know, forgive my language, it's bullshit, <laughs> right? This was essentially BP and a couple of other oil companies pushing something to make the, uh, the everyday person feel that they are responsible, right? The top uh, 100 companies in the world account for 70% of all carbon emissions, right? So, applied to this context. Yeah. Why do you think um, we have uh, partnerships with industry and that this is only going through industry? Because, well, that is where the pressure is. I think, I think, I think that, that for me is the answer. Uh, you will have to, there are of course lots of other things that play into it, but I think you can't ignore that. But on a daily activity, I'm a you know, university uh, researcher, and you are as well, we do not feel that presence on our daily practices, and we still have a lot of freedom, right? We we can choose to you know to publish the design of our you know systems instruments. Uh, we can choose to publish our software that we write for controlling. Mm. And do you feel that this is happening to the degree that it should? Uh, well, the first the first thing I would say is that. The experience that you have daily is, at least the one that I have, is mixed, right? It's a mix of... Uh, Tell us about it. Uh, for instance, um, I would say that now there is a, a very strong movement of uh, going back to uh, supporting social needs with public funding and tax uh, uh, payer money because it's logical, right? But at the same time, there's an, extra, uh, an entire controversy about the presence of companies there and which companies, because we're not talking about small SMEs, we're talking about huge corporations. So I do experience uh, that in my daily life in the assumptions that people make about the economy, about what is viable and what is not viable, what is feasible, what is not feasible, what is interesting or not, or uh, why you should patent or not. And that's how that's how you get to feel it. You get to feel it by... Uh, people going through certain directions of interest or focus, especially, for instance, you, you see it in research, uh, the Horizon 2020s, they have an agenda where with a very strong criterion about what would make you a successful uh, researcher, you know? And you have to fit in that niche and you have to apply to get those grants. But the, the, the constraints in which those grants are set up of course, it varies because it's a struggle to put of agendas. It's a, it's a sum of uh, of many agendas, not just one. 
But that's the boundaries where people uh, look into uh, are are limited. You know, not necessarily in what they decide to do later when they when they have that made been successful in that framework. You know, but uh, but you see it at many levels, and and one level is definitely the culture one. You know, people say, oh yeah, we have to also say companies. But I say, yeah, but what companies are you talking about? The big ones or the small ones? You're talking about the startups or you're talking about the Microsoft. It's very different. You know, so you see. Um, in the ground, the the what prevails or what remains is the assumptions that people make about how science should be or about how technology should be, which how it should be produced, uh, why you should prioritize A over B, why this is not interesting, and precisely those things that are not interesting to people. And I think like it might be interesting for them. Or I ask them, why is not why are people not interested in this, or why are not people looking from this angle? That's that's where things are for to me are really interesting because there's a wide spectrum of things that you could look at different perspective, but you see a dominant current uh, of ways of looking at things. Can you give me an example to make it a bit more tangible? Yeah, for instance, uh, uh, let's say for instance the policy of software at the university, right? Uh, you say, okay, do you want to? They say uh, the policy about how do you should release your software, okay? You want to make it, uh, there is a, a clause that said, you want to make it commercial, uh, then go this way. Do you want to, you, do you don't want to make it commercial, then you can do it open source. And that's a that's a very narrow vision because you can make it comer- commercial also being open source. Yeah. So, uh, and then the assumption is is there already without even being questioned, you know? And like this, there are, there are uh, yeah, there are many examples. Maybe it's, yeah. So I see that there is this old system has been functioning and has been also as its own advocates. But there's also this new system and with the growth of the open science communities everywhere in Netherlands, I see there are a lot of people enthusiastic about it. So it seems to me that for a while these two communities will coexist. So how do you in your community, open hardware community, actually find common ground between these two and maybe not people make everything open source, but the part that they can do, they can contribute you facilitate for them to do it. Do you have such a vision in mind or are you focusing on training so that people eventually in the long run do the right thing? Um, I think it's a bit of both. You know, to amend what I said previously, it's not that partnering with companies is bad. It's not that when, uh, when a research output that could be commercialized and be beneficial to people, it shouldn't be done. I think that's perfectly fine. The question the previously was, should that be the driving factor as to where we push research, and opposed to how the community can coexist. So for us, the community is still pretty nascent. It's still young. It's coming up. And I think part of the element here is to get the people at the university and the community around us to know that this is a possibility, to know that, yes, open hardware is possible. Um, I think partnerships will start evolving from there. I think we've talked to uh, you know young people who are doing a lot of different things, young entrepreneurs, and they want to partner partner in different aspects. Uh, we have researchers, both from you know bachelor, undergraduate, PhD, whatever age or range you want to look at, who want to do things open source, right? And I think the point here is to support them and see where it goes. So um, for me, it's allowing them to explore what's available. So. You know, I don't want to give specific names, but we've talked to people who have startups and who are like, you know, want to include their what they are producing in an open source manner. Um, what could have, you know, uh, 
readily be patented and used. They want to make it an open source business model. Mm-hmm. So I think th- that exists, and it's about building it slowly. And I think this is what we are looking at is very much a bottom up approach. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's driven a bit also by the students' will to to actually support and join your community. Yeah, by the people around, and it's really it's really. Actually, in our practice, it's, it's, it's very far from trying to prescribe like, oh, you should do things open source. It's that we rely on open source projects and we use open source projects to make trainings or we support the ones that want to do it. So it's by showing it in practice and making it organic and make it a natural you know, thing that we do that people realize that you need to do that. So when there is a need to share, Uh, then it becomes very natural to make something open source. When there is a need to protect, then there is the, it comes in the natural sense of patenting, which I also understand very well, because you cannot really support open source initiatives with a backup of, uh, of capital or investment or, or, or even, you know, just basic protection of the people that develop the, the hardware. Because some people just want, the developer just need to have a sustainable income, for instance. Yeah. to develop hardware. And they sometimes they don't even care where they are produced. But if they have to choose among, okay, you have to make something extremely successfully successful from a business point of view, uh, or you you better get a job. Instead of why don't you support someone that is doing open source for society and then maybe a company can also, uh, you know, manufacture it and make it, maybe you can even make a partnership where you say, okay, I'm willing to open source this next version, but I want to back it up with uh, with some capital. And we make an arrangement or an agreement. You know, there are many interesting ways of doing things. The point is that the dynamics of the people and the needs of the people and the needs of the, the, the community or the institution, the reality of people, is more important to look at than the, you know, the output. Uh, okay, an open source hardware or whatever. Because all that has a history. When you look, about the, when you look at the history of Linux or the uh, history of Arduino, you see that it's a very humane kind of story. It's not, uh, you know, it's not a linear path like, oh, they wanted to do open source, they did it and they were successful. Yeah, so. It's really about the community coming together and also learning together. So, and I get from your answer, if I want to summarize, that's actually also one reason that the students join. Am I right? Do students join because of the community or because of the fun or maybe because of learning? I, I think it's a combination. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I think um, people join because of the community. So, for example, part of open hardware, we have a community call every Friday, right? An hour-long meeting, people are open to join. Uh, we have a Telegram channel where people can essentially, whoever wants to, can join. The meetings are online. Um, you know, one advantage of the, of the pandemic mm-hmm. moved online. And now we have regularly lots of different people. Uh, and I've met new people through this that, I, that really I wouldn't have met otherwise, right? So th- that's coming together simply because of that. But there must be a reason that Delft has the open hardware community and Utrecht doesn't or Amsterdam doesn't. Was it because you were there or was it because just the sphere was right? I think there, there was a mix of things. For instance, uh, to, to tell you a bit the story, the story was me and a friend that lives in Utrecht now were saying like, hey, you know, why don't we talk about it at the university? Someone must be interested. And then we found the open science community and the data stewardship program, which is, you know, Santos is part of that. And they were interested, they were looking for this kind of initiative and they wanted to support it, back it up, give it a try. So there needs to be a, a critical minimum mass of people uh, around that care about these things, you know, that want to bring it forward. 
And when you have that and you have that enthusiasm and you you create spaces or, you know, interactions where people talk, like we do also workshops and we do the workshops also because you learn from being with people and, you know, having a, a good time and seeing how people do things with hardware in a different way. Uh, actually, people that are even uh, not in the range of age that we are, that are even older, is you know, there's a, and they are not even from the university, but they are very interested in the university. Citizen, I don't know, uh, I don't know, Angela is an example, Chuck is another example. They just come and do amazing things that you would, wouldn't even think about. So the important thing is to have those spaces, like, and to have it, uh, cycles of regularity. You need to have some kind of regularity. You need to have some kind of routine or habits where people say, okay, every every month there is a, an event I can go there. You know, there's a cool people going there. So if you provide that and energy and spirit, then new people will join and then you will respond to that. You don't have a plan, but you expect that new things happen. And that's that's where the next that's where the next steps are, you know, when these yeah. things... So it seems that you had actually the ears and also the support. I understand this basic support has been very crucial for your community to take root. But now that you have the enthusiasm and the ears of the people with the deeper pockets and uh, decision-making power, what do you want to ask from them? Um, well, f for one, for example, uh, Delph had, uh, has an open science uh, program, um, and open hardware has uh, joined it as one of the pillars of the program from 2021. So that was an addition. So mm -hmm. uh, the fact that the open science program recognized that this is important and they included us uh, as part of it and provided us funding to do something we do with it is, I think, a very good first step. I think another uh, good first uh, good step is we've run uh, workshops as part of open hardware. Um, in fact, in February for the Open Science Festival uh, for the Netherlands, um, we ran an hands-on uh, open hardware workshop, but it was done fully remote. I was in that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite so, fun. Yeah, so so that was uh, that was an effort to that. Uh, just last weekend, uh, last week, we had uh, a, another workshop um, having people build a, a, a computer cluster with the Raspberry Pis and Pi Zeros. But that's what you offer. What are you going to ask? You know, I, I understand now. Uh, yeah, our yeah. open science program does not have open hardware, so I'm going to ask open hardware to we be a strongly <laughs> support that. <laughs> no, but the thing is that we needed money to buy these components. We needed, uh, we need, we need also uh, that our our supervisors uh, allow us to invest part of our time on that. Uh, one of the things that we were also pushing to add uh, a research hardware engineer yeah. dedicated to a community where you know people can come and consult, and we can we need. Uh, support for that. We need money to get a position uh, in research hour engineering. We need, uh, you know, sometimes we apply for funding. So we, the way it works is that we we tend to re review our vision with new initiatives that we want to have and we discuss it with them and we say, hey, this is our plan for this year. So we want to have a research hour engineer this year. We would like to host more of this event. We would like to have office hours where people can join and we review that with the community and also, uh, uh, you know, regularly. And that's what we present to the board of uh, of open science at the university and the faculty. So that's how that's more or less the mecha the dynamics of how to get you know people that can uh, part yeah, sponsor the the initiative to be activated, articulated, and be part of the community because they they are in the end part of the community as well. They 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 are part of the stakeholders. So yeah, no, absolutely. Like I think the research hardware engineer position, similar to how universities have research software engineers and data managers, I think. If you are serious about open science, and I think if you're serious about uh, being reproducible in your research, I think 
within the next few years, there has got to be a recognition that a research hardware engineer is a position that is needed. Uh, and that's why we are running a pilot. And we've been given funds to run that pilot. Fantastic. So, uh, I mean, we'll have the research hardware engineers start later this year. It's going to be, you know, running to the end of next year. There, we want to experiment through this uh, option. We are not just, uh, you know, looking to do one or two things. We want to, there is support within the university at TU Delft, for example, for open um, hardware minor. Um, so that is a longer vision term part of that, wherein you want to bring in open hardware into education. into education at a bachelor level, introduce them to that. Uh, once the, you know, three, four, five years down the line, the hope is that we have an open hardware minor, we have uh, open um, research hardware engineers in the university, and that much more of the research output, you know, I'm not expecting 100%, there is still going to be partnerships, I'm supportive of those partnerships with industry and doing those things, um, but more of the research that is not captured now can be made open source, uh, can be made more accessible. And that in itself will have a sticky effect, right? Once people see something happening, they want to be a part of it. And that will agglomerate into something much bigger. Fantastic. And that's bringing me also to the last topic I want to discuss with you because it came the issue of sustainability, another program that Delft now has, and it's quite famous and we look up to it also here in Utrecht, although sustainability is also a big theme in Utrecht, is this climate action program for the 10 years, which, you know, the university says, you know, we are going to do it. Now, do you see open hardware also contributing to that? And how do are you going to combine this idealism of openness and access on the hardware side with the urgency of the climate action and sustainability? That's a very good question. And uh, it's a very good question also for, for hardware, because in the world of hardware, uh, even the hobbies and the guys that are enthusiastic about um, open hardware, you are used to buy a lot of components. Something I I genuinely think about when I'm buying stuff, am I going to use this all the time? You know, I, the, So I think there is a lot of connection to the concept of appropriate technology. I don't know if you have heard about it. Tell us about it. Uh, there is a very, I think it's a Dutch magazine. I don't know if you have heard about Low Tech Magazine. Yes. They have one last website called Homebrew Server. Where they toggle the entire vision about the internet, including the hardware, the software, and everything, as something that is sustainable, as in appropriate, as in that it should be at the proper scale, it should be at the manageable scale, it should be local, resilient, and things like that. So that's where the open hardware has an offer to sustainability. It also has an offer in terms of sovereignty and technological sovereignty. At the local level in any country, I think always about my country, Cuba, because it's very small and a third world country where there's a lot of engineers that would benefit from open source uh, technology. Instead of relying only on big uh, suppliers, you know, big corporations, you can also combine it with appropriate solutions where you don't want to have huge infrastructure for everything. You might want to have local resilient infrastructures. So in that kind of new way of setting up infrastructures, which are more appropriate, as they, this guy's called in the low-tech magazine, I think there's a lot to offer and there's a lot to look into uh, with regard to open hardware and climate change. And do you have examples of projects which are studying on this, uh, on both grounds in, in Delft? In Delft, well, we actually had a very ambitious project. It was very naive from, from, from our side where we wanted to repurpose uh, smartphones. And that's a very interesting idea, but that would require to engage actually professors from EMCS faculty, and it would need to be a, a very big program because it means that you need to, you know, install Linux in in in, in smartphones and 
repurpose them with GPIOs as a, as a Raspberry Pi. And that's something I can't do, you know, I don't have the capacity to do that. But the idea of repurposing gadgets that are old and mm -hmm. studying them is a very powerful idea. I don't know if, if we should include it again, <laughs> but we, we try to we try to say explore that. But the, yeah, but this is really techy and really advanced. You know? So you need in for this kind of stuff, you really need commitment of the university, as you're saying, where they really understand the, the, that concept of appropriate technology and reusability uh, over scale or more production or more whatever. So that's that's where I think should be looking at as well. Yeah, um, I, I have a, another example. So. Um, a community member, um, I think I can say his name, Simon Brinksma, uh, Simon who uh, in this thesis project uh, essentially worked on um, uh, producing a, a recyclable um, uh, solar panel. Right? And Jerry as well. We and have Jerry's, to talk about Jerry, Jerry with the plastic scanner. The plastic scanner. So uh, um, here is somebody who wants to do something to make sure that, you know, 30 years down the line when hopefully we have enough solar panels to have a fully uh, renewable energy sector, we suddenly are not left with the deluge of, uh, uh, you know, the kicking the can down the line. Oh, we'll deal with solar panels down the line when, oh, they are not so maybe so recyclable. We have another uh, member, uh, Jerry DeVos, uh, who um, essentially developed a plastic scanner to help with recycling. Yeah, right? And uh, he's been involved with Precious Plastics, another Dutch initiative, uh, to produce... Um, Re recycle uh, plastic in a more efficient way, identify recyclables, produce, uh, uh, you know, maybe upscale, upcycle them into some products that can be reused and things like that. So, yes, there are opportunities uh, uh, to combine. But I think it's also, uh, if you want to talk about sustainability and the, uh, the long term, you know, your own project about flow batteries, right? You want to do it open source. So I come from India. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and a country like India for it to move towards fully renewable energy invariably requires enormous amounts of storage. Right. Yeah. And there are lots of battery, lots of different storage options coming in. There's, of course, pumped hydro that's there. Mm -hmm. But realistically, we were, we're going to need lots and lots of batteries yeah. uh, to do it. And, you know, something like a flow battery that's open source available that can be scaled regionally in different parts of India you have to realize that there are significant parts of India that don't have access to reliable electricity, right? Uh, so something like this could not just allow us to develop in a, re, uh, in a sustainable manner, but actually for the first time allow people to have access to reliable power, yeah. right? Microgrids. Yeah. Microgrids. Mm -hmm. There are so many options. So if, as an example, I would point to you, Sunny, <laughs> what you're doing. Well, I'm still struggling. Uh, <laughs> no, but, but that's the point. It, it's an admirable effort and it's, it's necessary. What you're doing, hopefully successful, it will genuinely contribute to making people's lives better. And in parts of the world where more people live but don't have as many resources. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, no. So. Uh -huh. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm actually getting a lot of inspirations. I have discussions with people in uh, academia, also in this topic of batteries. A lot of research is still from academics. and But now convincing them, they would like to see examples. You know, in the issue of batteries, says, Look, uh, smaller scale stuff in the lab, it's fine, but a battery is a dangerous device. It has electricity, it catches fire. So I don't feel it's safe to make it open source. So it becomes the issue of safety, not quality. So, And you have to show to these people that are very good willing people that you can have open source and safe. And in that, I actually thank you for bringing it up because as <laughs> much as you can show in the university that you can have a viable, 
business model, giving you know household products which work and they are safe. Uh, it's very important so to gain people's trust. And I think that's a very good point to stop this conversation. Is there anything else that we missed talking about? Um, there are no. so many things to so talk about. Things. Things. <laughs> so, I mean, I would just add, you know, you can, the threshold to starting a community uh, is low in the sense of you need to be interested. There's a lot of work that needs to be put in, of course. I'd never take away from that. But uh, if you can't start it, uh, look around. What's there? You know, we are at a university, but we are open to partnering with anybody and everybody who's interested. And I think, yeah, reach out to people who are interested. Look out for what's going on. Be act actively involved as uh, possible. I think, yeah, I think that's that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, thank you very much for joining me in this uh, interview. Thank you very much for inviting. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Road to Open Science podcast. The Road to Open Science is an initiative from the Utrecht Young Academy and supported by the Open Science Platform at Utrecht University. This episode was edited by me, Lieven Heremans. Please subscribe to the podcast feed to stay up to date. Okay.